The Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. Taught by Chris Martin, this course has been created to demonstrate the importance of biblical literacy in the 21st century. When I was in middle school, my parents gave me a copy of the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis's great series of books. And like the obedient child I was, I read them all, and I liked them all, and I could tell you all about the story. But to me, it was just a good story by this guy named Lewis. When I was a sophomore in college, my English literature professor at Baylor made us read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And she did a deep dive into the pictures that were in that book. Who does the lion symbolize? Who does, what does the wardrobe symbolize? Who do the three kids symbolize? And she was an incredibly godly woman and just blew my mind because I remember the story but I didn't fully get the picture, the typology. And what we're doing this morning with Joseph is a lot like that experience for me. I would argue that Joseph is the second most important guy in all of Scripture to study behind only Jesus Christ himself. To a Jewish audience, that's heresy, because Moses ought to be number one in the Jewish mind, and Abraham's right behind Moses. But to a Christian, Joseph is the single best picture of Jesus Christ in person than anybody else in Scripture. So we're going to cover the familiar story of the boy and his coat and his brother's efforts to kill him and what happened with Potiphar and the issue with Potiphar's wife and being in the prison and most of the things that all of y'all have studied. But the deep dive we're going to do is the parallel, the picture to Jesus Christ. Now, a couple of you have done this deep dive. Most of you haven't. So for the most of you, this will be real eye-opening, I hope. For some of you, if you've done the deep dive before, just hang in there. I still think you'll enjoy it quite a bit. But we're going to do a deep dive on the pictures here. What is significant to me in our study here is that unlike all of our prior studies, the second person of the Trinity does not show up in Genesis chapters 37 through 50. We don't see the angel of the Lord show up. We see the second person of the Trinity directing. As you read through, when you read the phrase, the Lord or the Lord God, it's a translation of Yahweh or Yahweh Elohim. It's been clear from our prior lessons that's a reference to the aspect of the Godhead that personally interacts with us. That's the second person of the Trinity. That's Jesus. That becomes explicitly clear in Exodus, which we're going to get to and spend about three weeks on Moses. That becomes explicitly clear once we get to Exodus. But for right now, we just see Yahweh directing what's going on, and instead we've got a picture. Now, lest you think I'm reading too much into the text, a great cross-reference is Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen, the Bible records a sermon of his right before he's killed. 
And Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7 is trying to persuade an audience that hated Jesus, killed Jesus, and had lust in their hearts to kill Stephen. And Stephen basically says in one-third of Acts chapter 7, our people have a history of rejecting and killing the Redeemer sent to us by God to save us. And his proof text is Joseph in Genesis 37 through 50. So Stephen did to that audience in part what I'm going to do to you guys in a deeper dive. And that is to say there is a picture of exactly what happened to Jesus Christ in the first century in terms of him, in terms of his family, in terms of all the Jewish brethren around him, and everything that happened to Christ, we're going to see. We're going to see a picture of him, his life. We're going to see a picture of salvation. We're going to see a picture of faith. We're going to see what I believe is the single greatest picture in the entire Bible outside of the Gospels of what Jesus Christ is all about. So that's why we're not seeing the angel of the Lord or a, a direct manifestation of Christology. Instead, we're going to see a picture. And we studied Noah's Ark. I gave you a review of that typology. A typology, remember, is a picture. It, it, it's a symbol. And, and in the Ark, we talked about all the different symbols of life and death and the need for salvation and how all that works. And it's a picture that we can draw that at the time would have been real superficial for them, but with a 2020 perspective, a retrospective from the New Testament, the ark comes alive in ways we haven't seen before. Same thing with Joseph. He comes alive in ways that you can't really fathom just by reading through the story without a New Testament perspective. So we're going to start in chapter 37. If you've got a Bible, I'm going to read through some key verses. We're obviously not going to cover uh, 13 chapters, and so parts of it I will reference verses and then just reference what's in the verse or a couple of words in the verse, but I'm going to give you a picture of what's in there. Uh, but we start with a picture of the Messiah. It starts in Genesis 37, which is really the picture of who Joseph is. And it starts out by describing in verse uh, 2 of chapter 37 that Joseph at the time is 17 years old and he's tending the flocks. And it says initially in verses 2 that he brings a report about his brothers who are not being good stewards. Now if you back up, we're talking about the boys of Jacob that we talked about last week. Jake who struggled uh, with uh, a very dysfunctional family, who struggled with his brother Esau, the issue with the angel that we talked about uh, with the, or the uh, seeing the stairways, the angels working, him wrestling with the angel of the Lord. We talked about all that last week. We then fast forward multiple decades. Jake's an old man now. He's had four women give birth to 12 boys who are, despite that sin, are going to become the progenitors of the entire Hebrew people. Joseph is number 11. Mama is dead. Mama was the beloved that Jake spent so much time trying to get, and she dies after son number 12, Benjamin, is born. So Mama's dies. He's the firstborn of the favorite wife, the favorite mother, and with uh, that situation, he becomes the favorite son. On the outline, I said he is the good shepherd. Verse 2 tells us he's tending the flock. 
It's hard to believe you could have a godly 17-year-old, but that's what we've got. The equivalent of a junior in high school, and this guy has got it figured out. And he reports to the dad what's going on. He is a good shepherd. A first picture that we get of his Messiah-like nature. We then also see that he's the beloved son. Verse 3 says, Now Israel, remember the end of last week, that's what God renames him after they wrestled. Now Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made a richly ornamented robe for him. And when his brothers saw their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him. So our issue here is he's the beloved son. Now what is significant is he's number 11, but daddy just elevated him with this ornamental robe to number one. Reuben is the oldest, then Simeon, then Levi. Reuben is the one that as the firstborn is entitled to the double inheritance, the double portion. But because Jacob loves this boy, and we don't know how much it was just uh, Jake guessing right or how much of it was God's hand. I mean, God's hand was clear there. We just don't know how much uh, Jake knew about it. But he essentially elevates number 11 to number 1. In time, that was recognized, that he was the number 1 son. He was the beloved son. Because there is no tribe of Israel called Joseph. There's a double portion that went to his son. There is the tribe of Manasseh, his son. There's the tribe of Ephraim, his son. So Ephraim and Manasseh become the double portion of Joseph, and those two tribes are essentially the tribe of Joseph. And by the time of Jesus, that makes up 40% of all the Jewish people. It was very, very, very large. So Joseph is the beloved son, he's the good shepherd, and he's a servant to his father. He brings them the report of these guys being scoundrels. Now there is a great picture here, not only of humanity, but the Jewish race as well. Because it's a picture that just being blessed by God, that just being in a good, godly family is not enough. Because Jacob interacts one-on-one -on -one with Jesus, with the second person, the Trinity. What happens on Mount Moriah with Isaac and the angel of the Lord is incredible, as we studied a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Isaac's got a great testimony, but is a pretty dysfunctional father. Jake's got a great testimony. He's an incredibly dysfunctional father. And the chapters leading up to Genesis 37 show these boys are a mess. And chapter 38 shows these boys are a mess. They are liars. They are murderers. They are lazy businessmen. There is nothing godly about any of these other 12 boys. Benjamin's probably too young at this point to matter. He's probably like in kindergarten. But the other 10 boys are just scumbags. They're just scoundrels. And so you cannot look at these and say the great-grandchildren of Abraham should have been really blessed. They were blessed. They were just still scumbags. And so our point here is he's a servant to the father. The rest of the boys are a complete embarrassment. And because of that dichotomy, our next point is he's the rejected shepherd. In verse 4, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. That means to his face, behind his back, these guys hated his guts, and they wanted him dead. 
Just like with Jesus Christ, the person who is intended to lead them, have authority over them, be the example to them of righteousness and a commitment to honesty and the commands of God, the rest of the sinful brothers hate him, won't say anything nice about him, and want him dead. So he is rejected. Uh, the issue on the coat uh, the translation I read said richly ornamented. Uh, when most of us grew up in vacation to Bible school, uh, we heard the story of the coat of many colors. Uh, I'm not quite sure where that translation came from. I haven't really studied. It's probably King James. Uh, but the translation I read is probably the best. It could have just had a bunch of shiny stuff on it. We don't know if it's got a lot of colors. When I was doing my internet search for artwork, most of the stories of Joseph and uh, Genesis chapter 37 have him in something that looks like a crazy rainbow. Right? There's no biblical evidence it was a crazy looking rainbow. Richly ornamented is uh, about the best we get. But the point is, that was elevating him, and the boys, the brothers, hated him for it. They want to kill him. Now, I've put on your outline that his position and name are prophetic. Uh, in verses 5 and 6, he has the dream, and the dreams are uh, the sheaves that are going on, and the sheaves uh, of wheat, the, 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 the plant that's growing, and how everything bows down is a divinely implanted dream that basically said, you really are going to rule. And it is divine because of his name and his position. His name, if you go back a couple of chapters to when he was born, his mother named him. And his name means essentially subtract and add. Sounds odd. But his name was, and his mother says, he took away my shame and he added to my blessing. So Joseph in Hebrew means take away and add or subtract and add. So what we're going to see in him is that prophecy in his name play out. Just like in Jesus Christ, we see him say to some people, I am going to call you out for who you are, and as a result, they're going to reject him. They're going to have absolutely nothing to do with him, even if they go to the point of their own death. But he's also going to add, and in fulfillment of Genesis chapter 12, 3, he's going to be a blessing on the whole world. And so the subtraction, the addition we see in his name and his position. The idea of the shafts of wheat that I've got up on the screen is essentially a picture of human work. You plant it, you cultivate it, you water it, you let it grow, you bring it together. It's human work. And in the dream, human work bows down to the anointed one. His brothers say, that's offensive. You're number 11. Get out in the field and start working. We ain't bowing down to you. Just like with Jesus Christ, they said, you're the son of a carpenter. Nothing good has ever come out of Nazareth. We ain't bowing down to you. So the picture here of the position and the name of being prophetic are also an incredible picture of Christ. Now in verse 9, he has another dream to further increase his popularity. And he says, this time, 
the sun, the moon, and 11 stars are bowing down to me. So it's not just humanity. It's all of creation are bowing down to me. And his brothers say, you are a megalomaniac psychopath. Get out of here. We really hate you now. And just like with Jesus Christ, demonstrating power over wind, over waves, over disease, people said, that's not right. That's got to be demonic. We reject it. So the picture here just becomes deeper and deeper and deeper. And the picture of human works bowing down to him and all of creation being under him and bowing down to him is certainly an incredible picture of Jesus Christ. The next point on your bullet is he's an emissary of the Father. In verse 13 through 17, the boys are gazing their flocks near Shechem. Now, as you read through that in English, it probably doesn't mean much. But if you did a deep dive on the earlier portions, the boys aren't supposed to be in Shechem. Shechem's a bad place. If you go back and you read chapters 35 and 36, the people of Shechem hate the boys of Jacob. They are hated because of what they did to the men of Shechem. They're supposed to be up in a city farther north. They're supposed to be up in Haran. They're not. They're down in Shechem. So the boys are in a place they're not supposed to be, and the father says to the beloved son, go get your fathers. Uh, go get your, your brothers. The obedient son said, yes, I'm going to do it. So he's an emissary to the father. He's going to bring his brothers back from where they should not be. Just like with Jesus and his Jewish brothers at the time, the desire was bring them back for where they've wandered off to in sin. But the boys want to kill him. Verse 18, they saw him coming in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. As I put on your outline, the brothers deny his kingship, and just like Jesus, they want him killed. When it says that uh, they plotted to kill him, it's obviously intentional. It's thought out. It's reflecting a hatred of his position. It's a reflection of his righteousness. And we get a little bit of insight when you get down into verse 21 that Reuben, the oldest brother, Right, The one who ought to be the leaders and say, hey guys, calm down, he's just a kid, cut him a break. It shows Reuben, the leader, knew it was wrong anyway and still did it. Verse 21 talks about, and, and the verses that follow talk about Reuben trying to scheme a way to keep the boy alive because Reuben knows murder is bad. And I think that's also a great picture of Christ in the first century because inevitably people would have looked at him, looked at his miracles, looked at his meekness, looked at his humility, and said, this is unlike anybody we've ever seen. But just like Reuben, they went along with the crowd. And just like with the brothers who plotted to kill him and for all practical purposes did kill him, they did the same thing with Christ. So it's an amazing story. They throw him into the pit, and for all practical purposes, uh, he is suffering and he is going to die. Now, uh, on your outline, I indicated that he was betrayed by uh, his brother Judah. Uh, 
verse 26. In verse 26, it says, Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, their cousins, and not lay our lands on him, hands on him. After all, he's our brother, our own flesh and blood. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver. The price of a slave is what they sold him for. Inflation takes over, and someone of a similar name 17 centuries later, Judas, not Judah, sells him for the inflated sum of a slave of 30 pieces of silver. So, 17 centuries earlier, the price is 20 pieces. In Jesus' time, it's 30 pieces. It's Judah, and then Judas, and we see once again incredible parallels. But we also see that he has got to suffer. And this is going to be a theme we're going to see all the way through, and we're going to tie it up big time at the very, very end about even though the boys are intentional, even though the boys are sinful, even though the boys are evil scumbags, God is totally in control. God didn't slow down one bit, and it's necessary for him to suffer before God elevates him into glory. And the suffering in the pit inevitably would have been thirsty. It says, as you continue to read 37, that his brothers sat down and ate and drank and mocked him and laughed. And there's some parallels at the end of 37 that are exactly like Christ on the cross. As he is in the pit thirsting, they mock him. Psalm 105 gives us a great parallel. I've got it up on your screen. It's written down on your outline as a cross-reference to look up later. And Psalm 105 is a reflection on this story. And Psalm 105 says, God called down famine on the land and destroyed all their supplies of food, and he sent a man before them, Joseph, sold as a slave. And then it backs up to this event in the pit uh, and, and the prison he was in. They bruised his feet with shackles, his neck was put in irons, till what he, what God foretold, came to pass, till the word of the Lord proved him true. Now remember why he's in the pit. He's in the pit because God gave him a dream and said, the works of man are going to bow down to you, and the creation in the heavens are going to bow down to you. And God says, that was my promise, no matter how evil mankind can be, nothing is going to slow down that promise. So this is essentially saying, as all this suffering is going on, God is still in control. And it's a great picture that Psalm says, starting in the pit, going into the prison where he's going to go after Potiphar, that suffering is necessary before he can be elevated. Last little point here that I did not put on your outline, but chapter 37 ends with him being carried off by the Midianite traders headed to Egypt. And the last point is his Jewish brothers think he's dead, but he's alive and a blessing to the Gentiles. His Jewish brothers think he's dead, but he is alive and a blessing to the Gentiles. As we're going to see in a minute, he's going to be a blessing in Potiphar's house. He's going to be a blessing in the prison. Everywhere he's planted, he blooms like you can't imagine. He's a blessing to everybody around him. 
And then he's elevated to Pharaoh. He becomes the prime minister, number two in charge. And he blesses the whole country and the whole world because at this time, Egypt is the world superpower. So once again, as with Christ, his Jewish brothers think he's dead, but he's alive and a blessing to, his, uh, to the Gentiles. Great, great, great picture of Jesus Christ in the person of Joseph. Don't get me wrong. I'm not arguing that Joseph was not a sinner, that in any way he was messianic. It's a picture. It's intended when you see Christ to say this is not the first time we've seen this. This is not so unique that we can't wrap our brains around it. It's intended to look back and say we've seen this before as God worked through history to show us who the Messiah was. All right. He's also a picture of the faith that saves. I've said on your outline that as we get into chapter 39, skipping over 38, we get a picture of a faith that saves. This is Joseph in Potiphar's house. And it starts out by talking about how blessed he is. Uh, if you read in chapters 39, verses 2 through 5, it says five times Yahweh was with Joseph. Yahweh was with Joseph. <coughs> Yahweh was with Joseph. That's the second person of Trinity. That's where Jesus shows up. Doesn't show up in person. Angel of the Lord's not talking to him. But it says, while he thinks he's separated from his family, he thinks, Daddy thinks I'm dead. My brothers wanted me dead and sold me for dead. It says, Yahweh, the Lord, is with him. So our first little lesson here that's critical is the most important thing is not where Joseph was, but where God was. And Yahweh was with him, or with Joseph is the fill in the blank there. He never left him despite the stuff he was going through. Now, the reason I said it is a picture of faith, because as you read chapter 39, you get a picture that gives you evidence that he was uh, what we would call a believer. He believed in the word of the Lord. If God gave him a word, he believed in it, and that's the essence of salvation. I've said on your outline a couple of points we'll cover very, very quickly. I said he was secularly faithful and morally faithful. The reason I mention those is not that those save any of us. Do not misinterpret that point. The point is they are actions that provide evidence of what was in his heart. So when he's vocationally or secularly faithful, when he's morally faithful, those things are simply actions that show his heart belonging to the Word of God. Cross-reference is the book of James. The book of James was written to help us identify this exact point. And all the stuff we do, all of what we call works, going to church, reading our Bible, being good, all that kind of stuff, the book of James helps us apply that we see in the life of Joseph of someone whose actions don't save them, but their actions are evidence of a redeemed heart that relies principally and solely on the Word of God. So secularly faithful is the first six verses. The Lord's with Joseph, the Lord's with him, the Lord's with Joseph, and Potiphar's house is blessed. Verse 5, the blessing of the Lord was on everything that Potiphar had. That's Genesis 12, 3 
fulfilled. He's a blessing to the Gentiles because of the Abrahamic covenant. He bloomed where he was planted, and Potiphar and everything he had was blessed, and because Potiphar was the chief to Pharaoh. He's like a cabinet member in our world. Pharaoh was then blessed, right? Because if the number one guy in your cabinet is blessed, that means the king, the Pharaoh, is going to be blessed. So it's like sunshine on that little group of leaders that's coming from heaven, coming from God, because Joseph is secular in his work. In the little things, he's faithful, so God blesses everything he's done. 7 through 20 is the infamous story of Potiphar's wife, a woman who's so bad her name's not even recorded, right? She's just Potiphar's wife. Someday in heaven, I guess, we'll learn her name to the extent it matters, but she's just Potiphar's wife. And with Potiphar's wife, it's the famous story. She doesn't have any problem having sex with him. He says, I'm not willing to do it. Now, remember, this is pre-Moses. This is before law. There is no written law on sex outside of marriage. There's no pre-written law on adultery. There's nothing. There is simply a man who knows what the Word of God is and who knows it's not right for me to have sex with my boss's wife. So he morally knows right and wrong, and he says, I'm not going to have sex with my boss's wife. So his view of sin is that I can't do something that hurts my employer because that's the equivalent of hurting God. So his perception has nothing to do with respect for Potiphar. It has everything to do with respect of God because in his mind, if he's working for Potiphar, he's working for God. So when the wife wants to have sex, he's like, nope, I can't do that. That's against God. He lost his coat, but he kept his character. And it's a great, great story about him pulling away, even though it's going to mean his uh, short-term demise, and it results in her lying about him. He ends up going to prison, and in prison we see his spiritual faithfulness. At the end of chapter 39, verses 20 through 23, he is in the prison. And while there it says, it starts in verse 21, Yahweh is still with him and showed him kindness, and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he made responsible for everything done there. Joseph the prisoner had the keys to the prison, wow. right? The only time I've seen that is in, you know, Andy Griffith Mayberry when Otis, <laughs> Otis has the keys, right? And that's comical. This isn't comical. He's got the keys to the prison, and he doesn't leave. It's like Paul, 17 centuries later, when the doors open up, Paul just sits there and keeps on praying because the guard didn't say you could leave. So the guard didn't say you can leave. It doesn't matter, Joseph, if the doors are locked, unlocked, open, closed, he's going to work. God blessed him. So in all of these situations, in Potiphar's house, in the prison, wherever he is, 
he blooms where he is planted. Not one single time does he say, God, get me out of here. Not one single time does he say, okay, God, when's that dream going to come true? I don't see any sheaves bowing down and the sun and the moon and the stars bowing down. He's patient and he says, God put me here. I'm going to make it the best I can possibly make it as a way to honor God. Exactly like Christ was in his ministry. All of us at this point would have punted. We would have been like, God, you have made me spend a decade of my life essentially as a slave for the chief of staff, Potiphar, and now rotting in prison. Remember, God, I'm supposed to be one of the good guys, right? I'm supposed to be the good shepherd. I honor my father. I honor your words. I said no to Potiphar's wife. When do I start to get a break, right? That's what we would have done. Joseph doesn't do that. Joseph simply says, Lord, thank you for putting me here, and he's going to keep on doing it. I genuinely believe the more and more that I read about the great men and women of history, the people that are true heroes that, that you read about in the history books, and they're like giants on the mountaintop. When I read their biographies or I read what other people wrote about them, I realize they're just as fallen, just as sinful, just as depressed, just as anxiety-prone as all of us. The difference between the great men and women of God is not some kind of superiority over any of us. The greatness of the men and women of God, Scripture and church history, are people that simply follow the promises of God. That defines greatness. There's still sin, there's still depression, there's still doubt, there's still anxiety, there's still a fear of failure and being minuscule and not being a big enough deal or not having enough money or not having enough influence, but they are people that cling to the promises of God to the point of death. I've read, at this point, thousands of biographies if you come over to our house, my library is huge. It lines four walls, 10 feet high, and a huge library I built. And every one of them are as normal as you and I are, but they are men and women that simply say, I may not get it, but I'm clinging to the promise of God. That's what Joseph is doing here, and that's a picture of spiritually faithful and spiritually patient uh, as he waded through the situation in, in prison. Now, I put on your outline a picture of salvation. And the picture of salvation is where we jump uh, into chapter 43. And in chapter 43, we get his elevation into Pharaoh, uh, in, in, in prison, he has the dream, he has the situation which, that he's initially forgotten by the guy he shares the dream with. The guy goes back to work for Potiphar. Pharaoh has a dream. Pharaoh can't figure it out. This guy said, oh, wow, wait a minute. There's this dude in prison that's pretty good with dreams. He remembers him. They bring him out. More years pass. And then immediately we see him elevated. In chapter 41... He is uh, immediately elevated in chapter, uh, or sorry, uh, verse 14 of chapter 41. Pharaoh sent for Joseph and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. After years in the dungeon, after years of working for Potiphar, more than a decade after being separated from his brothers and his family, uh, 
God moves and it changes on a dime. He is quickly brought from the uh, dungeon up. So the picture of salvation is what happens as we get into 43 and 45 about what's going on in Egypt at the time. The vision is there's going to be seven years of famine. It's going to be followed by seven years, sorry, seven years of blessing, followed by seven years of famine. Pharaoh says, who should I appoint? Uh, You'd think Joseph would be saying, I, I, I'll do it, I'll do it. Joseph never raised his hand. Pharaoh, through apparent divine intervention, says, Joseph, I think you ought to be the one, and he gets put in charge of it. The picture of salvation here is very, very simple. It starts with a recognition of a providential need. Chapter 42, verses 1 through 5, make it clear there is a need. Chapter 42 says, essentially, there is a famine. Chapter 42, verses uh, 6, Joseph is the governor of the land. He's number two in command, the one who sold grain to all the people. His brothers arrive, and they bow down to him with their faces on the ground. And as soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. And then it describes the, the, the discussion. Drop down to verse 21. The brothers think they're being punished, Joseph, it says in verse 21, saw how we saw how distressed he was when he pleaded for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come on us. So in verse 21, the boys remember Joseph and think we're in trouble because we've rejected God. That's the second point, that they don't recognize their Savior. They are clueless of who their Savior is. They just realize they are sinners. And there is no doubt in the days of Jesus, the Jewish people of Jesus' day realized they were sinners. That's why they went to the temple. That's why they did all that stuff. They didn't recognize their Savior. One of the great points here is what Joseph does to the brothers. He could have popped out and said, hey guys, it's me, it's Joe, look, I'm shaving my head, I'm wearing a funny hat, look, it's me. He doesn't do that. Because you can't lead someone to salvation solely by grace. Okay? Theoretically, you could. But what happens? It's fake. There's nothing to it. Until there is repentance until someone says, I turn, I sin and I turn, there is no picture anywhere in scripture of God meriting grace. It is why in our day-to-day, the theology that all good people, I guess all non-mass murderers, get to go to heaven, or all people of all faiths get to go to heaven. That's repugnant because the picture in Scripture from Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation is there's got to be repentance, and after repentance, then and only then can there be salvation. So that's why the Joseph story drags on now for a couple of chapters. Because up through verse 21 of chapter 42, everything that's going on is Joseph making sure that it's not a temporary change for temporary gain. See, Joseph wants to know, have you boys changed? 
because if he gives them food for their belly and sends them home and they're still scumbags, then he knows the promises of God can only be slowed down by what the sin of the men are doing. He realizes for these boys to fulfill the word of God, they've got to change their heart. So he goes through this huge drama about you boys go home, you, you know, do this with your father, you we're going to keep Benjamin here, the boys freak out, it's just a big, big, big drama. But at the end of chapter 42, we see the picture of the Savior longing to bestow grace, desiring to bestow grace, saying, guys, please do right. Chapter 42, verse 23 the brothers, they did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. Verse 24, he, Joseph, turned away from them, the brothers, and began to weep. He cried for his brothers because he heard them debating about himself. He heard them debating about the trauma that it would do to dad if a second boy didn't come home. And he broke down because he heard the brothers and he just wanted to see a change. He can't set aside his righteousness simply because he loves them. He can't set aside his righteous standard simply because he loves his brothers. He can't compromise because the survival of the family and the survival of the promise for the family requires righteousness. So love has nothing to do with it, so he weeps, just like God weeps at sin. You ask, where's God when bad stuff happens? And that's a good picture. He turns and weeps. Doesn't mean he loses control. It doesn't mean he can't intervene in a nanosecond, but God weeps when we sin and when we don't come running to him and when we don't pray to him and we don't yield ourselves to him. And it's a great picture of us and God. Salvation requires that we lay down, that we be willing to lay down our lives. Chapter 44 gives us a picture here of what's going on. What salvation is not is a bunch of gifts, a bunch of works, all the stuff the boys initially thought they could do to buy the blessing of the sovereign. Judah, the scoundrel brother, fourth brother, offers a substitutionary atonement for Benjamin. Judah in chapter four in chapter 44 says, don't take baby brother. Daddy's heart will really break because he's the only child now of favorite mom. And so Judah offers a substitutionary atonement and Judah in chapter 44 says, I will lay down my life. At that point, Joseph doesn't say story over, but Joseph says, that's a pretty big plus. You're now making progress. I'm seeing repentance where somebody says, I'll lay down my life. It is the reason why in our baptism today, when we dunk them under the water and lift them up out of the water, 
we say dead in your transgression, raised again to walk in the newness of life because it is a picture of our willingness to die. I'm going to die to my intentional sin. I'm going to die to my soul-focused self-centeredness. I'm going to have a Lord that's other than me. That's our picture of baptism. That's what salvation means for us. But the other story here and the other key point as I've put on your outline is true forgiveness involves or requires divine involvement. And the picture here from chapter 24 is that Joseph, despite being the most Christ-like guy we see in the Bible other than Christ, still can't have total control. Chapter 45 starts, Joseph could no longer control himself before his attendants. And he says, you guys go away. I got to be here with these guys all by myself. And he says in verse 3, Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. They are scared to death. And this situation here of the brothers who originally wanted to kill him and Joseph, who has every right to hate their guts, in verse 45, you see something that could only be described as supernatural. They are remorseful. They are loving. He is loving. He is forgiving. And to those of you that say, I can't forgive that person because they hurt me so bad. I can't forgive that person because they violated me. I can't forgive that person because they took my money. I can't forgive that person because they took my reputation. Whatever it may be, the answer is, you are exactly right. You have no ability to do that. Left to your own, you'll fail miserably, and you'll be miserable for the rest of your life. But forgiveness involves a divine intervention where something supernaturally happens to our soul, and for the first time, we get the ability to treat sin the way God treats sin. Think about this for a minute. What does the Old Testament say God's view of, of forgiven sin is? It says to God, it is as far away as the east is from the west, and it's as far away as the very bottom of the ocean. Okay, that's the picture. How could an omniscient God do that? We have trouble wrapping our brains around it, but that's what Scripture says. It's as opposite as it can be. Well, if we are going to become sanctified, if we're going to become more Christ-like, Christ is going to be more of us than we were originally, then it makes sense that that view of someone who hurt us, it might not leave our minds, but we can say, as to your past transgressions, I will treat it as far as it is from the east to the west or as if it was on the bottom of the ocean. They may have hurt me. They may have violated me. They may have taken my money. They may have taken my reputation. I'm not going to forget it. But I will treat it as if it's on the bottom of the ocean. In other words, I won't bring it up. I'm not going to beat them over the head. Every time I get upset, I'm not going to say, do you remember what you did to me? I ain't doing it. Divine forgiveness is when supernaturally you get the ability to say, I'm going to treat it like the East is from the West and it's totally separated. I'm not going to bring it back up because they don't need to be brought back up. And if you struggle with doing that, it means you got to say, God, give me more of Christ because I'm having trouble doing that. But that's the picture in chapter 45 of exactly what Joseph was doing because he had every right to order those boys executed when they were in his presence. And he said, I'm not going to do it. 
So true forgiveness occurs with divine involvement, and the Savior desires reconciliation. Verse 4, Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. If I was an artist, I would draw this, because I've never seen art that just makes me want to cry. This was pretty close it's not amazing, but the picture is pretty awesome of the boys hugging him, the love. I think it would have been the greatest male bonding the world had ever known at that point in time. The boys overjoyed. Joseph overjoyed. Tears flowing. And what an incredible picture of what Jesus Christ does when a lost child comes to him. The greatest bonding you can imagine occurs when it's just like with Joseph and his brothers and there is that reconciliation. Chapter 45, last point, the Savior wants us to go proclaim the good news. For chapter 45, verse 13, go tell my father about all the honor accorded me in Egypt and about everything you've done and bring my father down here quickly. The Savior wants us to go proclaim the good news. Evangelism. Go share the good news. Picture of Christ, picture of Joseph. It's amazing. All right, I want to end in the last few minutes we've got on this hard issue of God's sovereignty because chapter 45 ends at this point with the boys around Joseph and they're wondering, kind of 45 through 50 in the rest of the story when finally Daddy shows up, Joseph, we're having trouble wrapping our brain around this. The question we ask in salvation after the emotional moment is over, after the altar call is over, we're home by ourselves, or something else bad happens to us, and we say, God, how can you love a scumbag like me? And we just don't feel saved. We don't feel different. There's a, a, the opposite of a mountaintop moment. The boys felt that. They basically said, Joseph, we don't get it. We killed you. We financially gained by killing you. You had every desire to kill us. We don't get it. Great little points here. The first issue, the first question is, why do bad things happen to good people? I raise this as an introductory point because this is always the question people ask about the sovereignty to God. And the answer is, what makes you think anybody's a good person? <laughs> bad things happen to bad people because we're all bad, right? There is no such thing as bad thing happening to good people. There are bad things that happen to less bad people, I'll give you that. But there are no bad things happening to good people. There's only one, and he was crucified, and he rose from the dead. For the rest of us, it's bad things happening to bad people. So get that paradigm out of your mind. The question is, in light of everything else going on, What's going on with God? And our first fill-in-the-blank here as God is working starts with chapter 45, verses 7 and 8. I've got it up here on, your, on the screen. You may have it in front of you in your lap. I'm reading from the NIV, and it says, But God, this is Joseph speaking to his brothers, answering that question why, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on this earth. In other words, to fulfill the promise to great-granddaddy Abraham, Genesis 12, 3. And to save your lives by a great deliverance. Verse 8. 
So then, it was not you, brothers, who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all of Egypt. You mean, Chris, men can be as evil as they want. They can try to destroy me, steal from me, take my money, try to take my life, take my reputation, and God can still be 100% in control. The answer is absolutely positively yes. That's Genesis chapters 45 and 50, and it's Romans chapter 8. Three chapters in our Bible deal with that fundamental point. And the fill in the blank as we get down there is despite all of the evil in the world, all of the sickness, all the intentional death, destruction, and character mayhem, God is still firmly in control. Firmly is the fill in the blank. Because the sovereignty of God never loses sight of the omniscience of God saying he is totally aware of all of that evil. He's not responsible for the evil. He doesn't bless the evil. He doesn't condone the evil, but he will use the evil for his glory no matter what. Our evil cannot supersede anything God has in mind. Our timetables are always different, but it's not changing anything with God. Second point, the corollary to God being in charge is he's not always pleased, but he is never perplexed. He's never perplexed. Mankind, your neighbor, your spouse, your child, your parent can do evil to you and destroy what you think is your life. And when you fall on your knees and cry to God, God isn't surprised and says, you're kidding me. He did what? <laughs> right? That's not God's answer to our prayer. God, Scripture says, knew it before it even happened. So how can he be perplexed if he knew it before it even happened? It says he's totally in charge of it. So our life lesson here is when people, problem, or pains are doing their worst for you, God is doing his best for you. See, the picture of Joseph doesn't really have to do with Joseph. He's the divinely appointed redeemer. What's really going on here is all of the brothers. The story of Joseph is not about Joseph. The story of Joseph is the change in the lives of the brothers. And to get the brothers from Genesis chapter 35 when they're scumbags in Shechem to Genesis chapter 45 when they're hugging Joseph's neck, changed men, that's what the story's about. So when we are like Joseph and we're in the pit, you don't know who else God's working on. As you are broken, as you are destroyed, as you're wondering, God, am I going to be alive next week or able to pay my bills next week? You don't know what God is doing to all those people around you that a week from now, a month from now, a year from now, 20 years from now, God may bring to fruition because he had to work on them while you stayed in the pit. So the story of Joseph isn't primarily about Joseph. He's our model. He's our typology. It's about those scumbag boys. And the celebration described in Acts chapter 7 when, when Stephen preached it is those boys. 
Acts chapter 7 is not about Joseph. Acts chapter 7 to his Jewish audience was, they repented. They came to the Savior. Why can't you? And so that's the application for us. It's not about us. It's God using us as he works on other people. That final point brings us to Genesis chapter 50, verses 19 through 20. It's probably my favorite verse in all of the Old Testament. Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid, am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Notice the syntax. Exact same syntax as Romans 8.38. It doesn't say God works it out for my good. Right? You can't read Romans 8.38 and say God intends all things for me to be good. Not what it says. Genesis says, just like Romans 8 says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the savings of many lives. It has nothing to do with Joseph. It's God impacting a whole bunch of other people. And it's my favorite verse because it is the most concise summary on the sovereignty of God anywhere else in Scripture outside of Romans chapter 8. You intended it for evil. God intended it for good. That's why it's my favorite verse in the Old Testament. We are at the end of our time. Hebrews chapter 11 says we all get to see this guy when we get to heaven. Hebrews chapter 11 says Joseph's going to be there waiting on us because he died in faith of the promises to granddaddy Abraham. His faith wasn't in his redemption, what he did to his brothers. It says he died because he believed the promises of God to Abraham. Just like us. We die not seeing the complete fulfillment of all of God's promises, but believing in the promise that dates back to Genesis that also impacts our salvation. At this point in time, Joseph and his entire family go into an incubator in Egypt for 400 years. There's 75 of them right now. When we pick this up again... There's going to be two million of them, two million of them after 400 years, and a boy named Moses, who gets to talk to the second person of the Trinity. We'll pick up there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this chance to come and study this great picture this great typology of you. And while there's so much that we struggle with to understand about you and, and, and your coming and, and our salvation, through a simple story like this, we can say, I get it, and I'm in awe. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for your salvation. Thank you for your sovereignty. Please use me as an instrument to do your will in a very, very dark world. Thank you for your blessings in our lives. Thank you for your the health that you've given us, for the time you've given us here, for the families you've given us, and just lead us and protect us until we're back here again. We ask these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Thank you all. This has been a presentation of the Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. All rights reserved.